As I was listening to that story, I, I thought, maybe I should just say, amen, and sit down. I go, what do you say? The Lord is God. He is God. Amen and amen. The story, isn't it uh, fascinating? It has, it has all the elements of a huge, gigantic challenge. Even a gigantic challenge in an arena. You know all the, the hype that is a build-up to a big game, the Super Bowl or whatever else? There was actually hype. There was build-up to this event. Elijah called all the people out. He said, come on out. And notice when they came out, it was like a great big circle arena all around. 450 prophets of Baal, 400 of Asherah, and one would assume many more people than those combined all circled around this gigantic event. I, I mentioned the Super Bowl. I don't think it was quite like the Super Bowl. I think it was more like a heavyweight fight. It was a throwdown. And God was about to show up. But in order to understand this story, let's remind ourselves of what brought us to this place. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Josiah talked about Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. There was a famine in the land. And Elijah went to the widow of Zarephath and helped her out. She helped him out. And he raised her son from the dead who had actually died. She didn't have any food, and Elijah said, well, that's okay. We can just kind of create food. I'll just make oil, never run out in your jar so we can bake bread and live. There was a famine in the land. Why? Well, because of Elijah. And he was suffering the same consequences as everybody else was. Because Elijah had declared to King Ahab, King, there will not be any dew or any rain in this land until I say so. Now, that's some pretty bold faith. You better hope God comes through when you make a declaration like that. And apparently, Elijah had that kind of faith. So the context of this story is that the drought that we hear about is the result of Elijah's word. Also, just before this story begins, there's another part to the story. Ahab and his chief helper... The assistant to the king, the servant named Obadiah, were actually out in the fields looking for green grass, right? There's not much green grass left because the drought is so bad, and Ahab says to Obadiah, we got to find some green grass. If we don't find some green grass, our animals are going to die. The horses we ride on are going to be our meals, so let's find some grass. King Ahab says to Obadiah, you go that way and I'll go that way. Surely we can find some grass somewhere. Obadiah, the servant of Ahab, is looking for green grass. And out of nowhere, as he looks, Elijah appears. Obadiah is overwhelmed. He says, oh my goodness, is that really you, Elijah? My Lord, he says. And he bows down and Elijah says, yes, it's me. And as a matter of fact, Obadiah, I've got a word for you that I want you to give to Ahab the king. 
Obadiah says, what? I, I don't want to do that. Why? Because I know what happens to you, Elijah. Over the last year or more, every time you're in trouble, every time you're in a corner, God just takes care of you like he'll whisk you away. And if I go tell the king that you're here, the king's going to show up and you won't be here and I'm going to get my head chopped off. Now, Elijah, my friend, my Lord, what did I do to deserve this? Am I not your friend? As a matter of fact, Elijah, you've got to understand something. Maybe you haven't heard this story. I'm on your side. Don't do this to me. Matter of fact, I'm so much on your side that I have saved a hundred prophets of Yahweh. I had 50 of them in one cave and 50 of them in another cave, and I supplied them with food because Ahab tried to kill all the prophets, of course, including you, Elijah, the ones who serve Yahweh. So why are you asking me to do this? I know what's going to happen. I'm going to die. And Elijah says to Obadiah, no, don't worry about it. I'm not going anywhere. Today, I'm going to talk to the king. Tell him I'm right here. So Obadiah goes and finds the king, King Ahab, and he says, Elijah is right there. King Ahab goes, and there's Elijah. And that's where our story begins. Remember the opening lines? Oh, King Ahab says to Elijah, it's you, the troubler of Israel. You're the guy who is keeping the rain from coming. You're the problem. And Elijah said, no, you've got it all wrong. You're the problem. It's not me. The rain's not coming, not because of me, not just because of my word. The rain's not coming because you're not following God. You're not instructing the people to follow God. You're following the Baals, the gods of the pagan culture. And for that reason, there's no rain. I'm just the messenger of the bad news here, King. As a matter of fact, I'm also a messenger of something I want to call he didn't really call it this, throwdown. We're going to have a throwdown. I want you to join me for a contest. You've been worshiping the gods of Baal. I've been worshiping Yahweh, the only God of Israel, and I'm the only one that's left. I'm the only prophet. I want you to come with me, and I want the people to come out, and I want to sacrifice before God. And and I want to put the sacrifice, these, these bulls, on the altar. And I want the prophets of Baal to pray to their God, and I'll pray to Yahweh, and, and we'll see who comes down from heaven and burns up the sacrifice. Let's do it, king. The king agrees, the people agree, they think it's a good idea, and they all show up. Now, back to the arena. Can you imagine? Look, there's 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, now, one would surmise, I think it's a safe guess, that there was more of the prophets among the people than there were of the prophets. So you got almost 900 prophets, Elijah and Ahab, and probably thousands of people all around in a circle. It is like an arena. It is like a prize fight. Who's going to show up? Well, you know the story that was just read. The prophets of Baal began to cry out to 
fail, they cut themselves, they scream, they holler, they're completely exhausted. And all the while, as they become more and more exhausted, Elijah taunts them. He says, what's the matter? Where's Baal? Where's your God? Is he really a God? Oh, yeah, he's a God. Maybe your God is busy. He gets a little overwhelmed. You know, he's not that big of a God. Details bog him down. He's busy doing something else. Cry a little louder. Maybe you'll hear him. Maybe he'll hear you. Maybe he'll come. Or no, maybe that's not it. Maybe he's traveling. He's taking a long journey. Maybe he just happens to not be here right now. By the way, that made a lot of sense to their ears. Why? Because these were local deities. And they just were here and then there and then there and they'd show up and maybe not. Or maybe Elijah said, maybe he's asleep. That too is part of the tradition. As a matter of fact, the God called Baal or the gods of Baal were said to, at the end of the rainy fertile season, which they were in charge of, they were said to go to sleep or to literally die and go into the earth and then come back at the right time of the year. So Elijah says, well, maybe he just went in a little early. You know, I know we're looking for rain here, we're hoping for it, but maybe he just said, I'm tired of all this, and he's gone underground. Maybe that's where he is. Elijah um, taunts them until they're exhausted, and then Elijah calls on God himself. First of all, let me remind you of what this was all about. What it was all about was Elijah was saying, who are you going to serve? People of Israel? Which God are you going to serve? Are you going to vacillate between this God and that God and back again? Or are you going to serve the living God, Yahweh? I love the, one, the way one uh, commentator translated it in his own uh, translation. He said, he put these words in Elijah's mouth. Elijah says to the people, how long are you going to limp along on two crutches? You know what the implication is? How long are you going to hang on to Yahweh because you know he's really God, and you're going to hang on to the gods of Baal because you think you need a little bit of help? How long are you going to live in this syncretistic religion that is yours? How long are you going to go on? I don't know if this is the place that Doobie liked the most, but I can imagine him saying, why you got to be so stupid all the time? That's a favorite phrase of Doobie. It says in his Jersey voice. But that's what Elijah's saying to the people. Why do you have to be so stupid, so foolish? Why do you have to be divided? Why do you have to go in opposite directions? And then Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and the contrast couldn't be greater. The prophets of Baal have been going on for hours, flailing on the ground, cutting themselves, yelling and wailing, and Elijah just says, God, it's time. Come on down and take care of your altar. But before he does, he tells the people, I want to make sure you know how great this is. Pour water on this altar. Do it three times until the moat around it is full. And then God rains down fire from heaven and consumes not only the sacrifice, but the stones and all the rest of the ground and the water. It's gone. 
Now, that's a, that's a great story, but there's something else going on here, you see, that is really in your face. The one thing that Baal is known for as a god is the god of rain and storm and wind and lightning. And they beg him for everything that he does. And God just comes down, boom, and takes care of it in a moment. In your face, Baal, I'm God. Well, the people get it now, right? They shout out the God. He is God. He's the only God. Let's follow God. It it is a wonderful story, dramatic story. It's not the kind of story that we uh, expect to hear tomorrow in the newspaper. It's unusual. There's another part of the story, uh, the other section that wasn't read. After this is all over, Elijah says, the 450 prophets of Baal, kill them. And on the spot, they're killed. Huge slaughter. Then he says to Ahab, Ahab, it's going to be a long day. You've already had a long day. We've been here a while. It's time for you to go get something to eat. Sit down and nourish yourself. And then shortly after that, he says to Ahab, Ahab, I want you to get on your chariot and I want you to ride like a fury because there's a storm coming. Now, it's not that he just didn't want Ahab to get wet. We know from the terrain where Mount Carmel was and where Jezreel was, that's where Ahab was going, that he basically had to go through this valley. And when the spring rains came, they flooded all the roads. Everything was impassable. And Elijah basically is saying to Ahab, the water's coming, you don't see it, but you better get on your horse and you better ride because you'll never make it home unless you do. Ahab at this point is smart enough to listen to Elijah and he takes off. And Elijah takes off too. He takes off and under the power of the Spirit of God, he is in front of the chariots with horses and outruns them to the palace of Jezebel. Incredible story. One more detail. After Elijah has killed the prophets of Baal, he goes up higher onto the mountain, Mount Carmel. And he gets down uh, on his knees, and the text says he put his head between his knees. And he prayed to God, Oh God, send the rain. And he told his servant, Go over there, on that ledge over there, and look out towards the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. That's where all the rain came from. See if you see anything. And the servant came back and said, no, no, sir, there's nothing out there. And Elijah bent back down, head between his knees, and he prayed again. And he said, go out a second time and see if there's anything out there. And the servant came back and said, no, sir, there's really nothing out there. And he says, let's do it a third time. Go out there and see. He did it seven times. See, God had just poured down this fire and consumed the altar, and Elijah's faith is tested, it seems. And finally, the servant comes back after the seventh time, and he said, "Uh, my Lord, out there on the horizon, there's a little cloud about the size of a man's hand. And that's when Elijah said, the rain's coming. I, I love that story. 
um, because it's just dramatic. It's fun. It's a great story to tell the kids. At least I thought it was a great story. My parents told it to me. But I have a very simple question about this story, and it's this. In this story, what do we learn about God, and what do we learn about ourselves? First, this is what we learn about God. We don't know everything that God is up to. You say, well, what, where, where's that in the story? It's the Obadiah part. Elijah's the big, fierce, bold prophet who stops the rain and then calls the rain. And Obadiah, the servant of Ahab, the inner circle of darkness and evil, he works in the palace. Obadiah, unbeknownst to Elijah, has been preserving the life of the prophets of Yahweh, a hundred of them. I, I want to suggest for a minute, and I, I don't have the right to do this, but I'm doing it anyway, that Elijah was saying to himself, yeah, but they're not real prophets, so they'd be out here with me. <laughs> well, would you say that? Come on now. That's what, that's what I'd say. Hiding in a cave? Oh, yeah. But he doesn't. You, you know what my suggestion is? The prophets are never indicted by anybody in the text. We don't know what they were doing. But they know, we know they were following Yahweh. They weren't doing it in Elijah's way. They weren't out there the big, bold prophet. But they were faithful to God. And Elijah apparently didn't even know it. See, God's at work in our world among people and in ways that we don't even identify. And we can become so arrogant, I'm charging Elijah with arrogance, that we think we're the only ones. By the way, Elijah didn't just say this once. He said it multiple times. John's going to preach from the next text next week where he reiterates this. And God tells him, are you serious, Elijah? You think you're the only one? What we learn from this text is God is working in our world in spite of the fact that we don't see it, and sometimes when we see it, we might not even recognize it. Second thing we learn about God uh, in this story is that God is a jealous God, and he wants us for himself. He's like that jealous lover that is in the image, as we mentioned last week, in the book of Hosea. He doesn't want your heart going anywhere else. He wants it set focused singularly on him. And you know what? He loves you so much that he's going to continue to pursue you. And when you wander away, just like these people did, he's not beyond showing up in a dramatic, huge way with a throwdown and all kinds of power to say, don't forget, I'm God. Don't forget your first love. I want to remind you who you belong to. God does that for the people. They've been really wayward. They've been running away. They've been worshiping all kinds of gods. 
And God says, I just want to remind you who I am because I love you that much. Third thing we learn um, in this passage, especially about ourselves, I think, when we look at these people, is that our hearts are easily divided. See, the history of Israel is not just a group of people who said, we don't care about Yahweh anymore, we're leaving him, he's not the true God. It's more like this, oh yeah, we got Yahweh, we know who he is, he's our God, but if one God's good, two's got to be better, and three's got to be better yet. Oh, we're hanging on to Yahweh, but we need a little bit of Baal. We need a little bit of Asherah. We got to have some local deities to fill in the gap. Even though we know God is God, we still have to have a little bit of additional help. And their hearts become divided. It's syncretism. It's God's all meshed in together and your heart going in all different directions and not singularly devoted to one true God. And my friends, our hearts are like that, right? My heart is like that. Your heart is like that. They're easily divided and we rush after other gods. What are those gods in your life? You knew that question was coming. <laughs> what are they? Ask God to reveal them for who they are. Ask God to show up in your life and, and burn up the dross and just lick it up and show that he's really God. I think the third thing we learn in this passage is that Alien gods are not just false gods, they're powerful gods. Right? Let me remind you, they showed up for a reason. You think they showed up because they didn't think Baal might do something? I doubt it. They showed up for a contest. They showed up to see what would happen. And it's likely that they believe that Baal has showed up for them before. And it's likely that the false gods that they worshipped were powerful in their life. Very powerful. See, we're way too sophisticated for all this false god stuff. You don't experience it around here. We just follow improper desires. But there are forces of evil in our world, my friends that draw you away from God. There is a real and present danger in this world. The force and power of Satan is alive and well. We don't see it like that so much anymore. If you travel in other parts of the world and hear the stories of Christian missionaries in what we often describe as primitive societies, you'll know that we're the sheltered ones. The idols and the gods are powerful and they're real and they're destructive. And that's why this is so important to remember. They're invisible to us, but they're real. Be careful where your heart goes because it's going in the direction of God or another an alien God, and the alien gods are powerful. The last thing I think we learn about God and ourselves in this story um, is that I actually think this story 
is just one of many stories in the Old Testament that points to the ultimate story, right? This is not just about Israel and Baals and Elijah and the power of God at an altar. This is about God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord of the universe, who eventually is going to put down the ultimate throwdown and make everything new. Eventually, the God of the universe that we worship is going to defeat all sin and wickedness and evil and all injustice and all crime and everything we know as an affront to God and a thing that pulls us away from God is going to be defeated by Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. And there's a cosmic battle going on in that book of Revelation. That book of Revelation is strange. I just would be the first to tell you I don't understand it. But it doesn't mean I don't believe it. It means I just can't figure it all out. Because there's the present and the past and the future all wrapped in one in this apocalyptic revelation. But the point of the revelation is that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords and he's going to make it all right. In the end, he's going to make it all right. And in between, now and the end, he's going to pour out his judgment and wrath on wickedness. It's going to happen and it happens now. Seven angels with seven plagues are in the book of Revelation and seven bowls of wrath and all this apocalyptic mysterious stuff where God is striking evil and destroying the great prostitute and the dragon and the whore of Babylon and the images go on and on and on. God is destroying it all, all of it. He's going to make everything new. You know what's amazing about that to me is the way it all ends. See, there's this mighty cosmic battle going on, and God's going to destroy evil. Bigger than this little throwdown, he's going to make himself God. And then when it's all over, you know what's going to happen? He's going to throw a party. Now, there's a way to celebrate. Evil is gone. It's vanquished. I'm going to throw a party. And you know what the party is? It's a wedding. It's a wedding party. This is the way it ends. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen and Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, voices, like a loud peals of thunder shouting hallelujah for our Lord God almighty reigns let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made himself ready you know who the bride is right the bride of Christ you You're the bride of Christ. Someday he's going to take this mess. He's going to destroy all the evil that threatens to destroy you. He's going to throw a party. It's going to be a wedding party for you. 
who follow him. I guess the reason I thought of that this week is because I got weddings on my mind, you know. My son's getting married in October. It's going to be here, just so you know. They'll be dancing because that's what weddings are for. You know what happens at weddings? Two people come together who love each other more than anything in the world, who are fully devoted to one another completely, and who long to have a perfect life together forever. Hey, we all know, you know, those of us who have been married a long time, that it's not going to be perfect. But on that day, everything seems perfect. The bride is beautiful, her gown is lovely, the groom is glowing, and the future looks perfect. The difference between that wedding and this one is the future is perfect. Nothing will intercept and separate the bride and the groom. You will live forever in perfect love in unity, in peace with the one you were made to live with forever. And you know what? I don't know how it'll work, but we're all going to be there. Isn't that cool? And yeah, there's going to be dancing. So you better get ready for it because it's going to happen. And that's the reason I requested an old song that a lot of people make fun of, but I like, and Rob said we could sing it. It's called We Will Dance. So stand, and let's celebrate the wedding of the Lamb.